We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Well, good morning. Today is Tuesday, June 20th, and I am Grace's dad. My name is Scott Shera. And this program is called Deprogramming with Grace's Dad because I believe one of the main reasons God allowed Grace to go home early was to deprogram me. And as I becoming have as I have becoming deprogrammed, I share those things with you and the guests that I have met along the way uh, are uh, obviously in the same boat, but usually way ahead of me. And the guest that I have today is leaps and bounds ahead of me. So I'm not going to tell you who it is yet, like usual. I'm going to give you a clue. And so we're going to look at something that um, Grace did with me because it leads into the main clue for you. So we just got done with Father's Day. Uh, That was a tough, this is the second Father's Day without Grace. She always made Father's Day super special. And the thing that I'm going to show you is I deer hunted with Grace. And so Don's going to bring up a couple of pictures. First is Grace sighting in her deer rifle. So if you can bring that one up. She was super accurate. You know, as an adult, I learned to flinch. I taught her how to shoot a rifle and she never flinched. And so she she could nail the bullseye uh, just about every time. It was fantastic. And so then we look at, well, what's the goal of deer hunting? And Don, you can bring in the second photo. So I'm sharing these because I talk about deer hunting at the event that that Don's going to play a short clip from. And this is the clue uh, for the guest that I have today. So Don, can you roll that clip, please? This was Grace driving her convertible. Oh, you're doing great. Hi, Paul. (laughs) I'm driving this car I bought from you. Grace, Grace had quite a sense of humor. And so, Grace, uh, this next weekend is deer hunting season in Wisconsin. Grace deer hunted with me, and so she could shoot a rifle. Grace had Down syndrome. So a lot of people think people with Down syndrome, are uh, they can't do much. Well, Grace was very high-functioning, I think, partially because God made her that way, partially because we never vaccinated her. And then third, and maybe most important, uh, my wife did a fantastic job homeschooling her. And so Grace could uh, read and write. Uh, she could ride a horse, play violin. Uh, I taught her how to drive a car. And what her, for me personally, the thing I missed most outside of her hugs was her uh, ability to... Uh, to share things in, a, in the form of humor. So two deer, seasons, two deer seasons ago, we were sitting in the deer stand, and Grace said to me, Dad, I have a joke for you. I said, well, what's your joke? So you got to consider a Down syndrome girl made up this joke. And so she said, where do bees go to the bathroom? So I said, I don't know. Where do they go to the bathroom? And she said, the BP station. So then, as we'd ratchet things up with Grace, and so Grace would keep, her and I would banter things around, so then I said to her, well, where do rabbits go to the bathroom? And she said, I hop. So then we got, the third one is for all of you, so now you should get the gist, where do turtles go to the bathroom? 
the Shell Station. Did anybody get it? <laughs> so you see this, this uh, sign. So the first time Grace and I drove by this sign, it was probably uh, four or five years ago. Now she's into the sense of humor. She said, Dad, look at that sign. I said, yeah, that's, that's a neat sign. What, is it, what does it mean? And so she said, it means watch out for falling bikes. <laughs> so that's your clue to my guest. So my guest is... I would say the most deep programmed person on the planet. And he is the founder of the Red Pill Expo. And I was speaking at the Red Pill Expo. So Don, can you please bring in Mr. Griffin? Well, thank you, Mr. Griffin, for coming. It's great to see you again. Well, thanks for inviting me, Scott. Yeah, I enjoyed your little dissertation about uh, Grace's humor the second time, I think as much as the first time. It's quite a story. Well, thank you for that. I remember speaking there. That was in November of 22 at, at Salt Lake City. Uh -huh. And I spoke right after you. And it was, you know, you're a very tough act to follow, but I was very um, thankful that you gave me that opportunity. And, and now you're giving me a, even a, a neater opportunity for you to share some wisdom with uh, a whole bunch of people. So I'm looking forward to this discussion. So for those of you who uh, I would think everybody knows who Mr. Griffin is, but I want to say a couple of highlights. So he wrote a, some uh, awesome books. He wrote The Creature from Jekyll Island. He wrote The World Without Cancer, the story of vitamin B17. I happened to meet the son of the um, person that that book was centered on. Uh, he has just most recently been in Mickey Willis's film, The Great Awakening. And you know, that was, um, he's got some uh, fantastic insights with that film. Not only was he in the film currently as he is now, but he also was in the film as he was digging into communism 50 years ago. And, you know, he has um, a background that is, is so wide, so, so, um, wide that he asked me when I asked him to be on this program, could we do this as a call-in program? And, you know, the problem with call-ins, of course, is how do you, how do you do, deal with that mechanically? So what we did was we have call-ins and at his request, we had the call-ins all send the request by last week, Friday. So that's what we're going to do today. And so I've titled this G. Edward Griffin Answers Audience, audience Questions and More. I'm going to get things rolling just so people have a framework as to what we're doing with one of the interviews that you did a long time ago with um, <clears throat> Norman Todd, who was the Congressional Director of Research for the Reese Commission. And so we're going to play that short little clip um, because it really sets the stage as to what was happening all the way back into the 50s, and now it is on steroids today. So let's go ahead and play that short clip, Don, and then I'll start with the first question, and then we'll key up all the questions for Mr. Griffin. We've had experience operating under directives, and these directives emanate and did emanate from the White House. Now we still operate under just such directives. Would you like to know what the substance of these directives is? And I said, yes, Mr. Gether, I'd like very much to know. <clears throat> Whereupon he made this statement to me, namely, Mr. Dodd, we are here operate on si similar 
in response to similar directives, the substance of which is that we shall use our grant-making power so to alter life in the United States that it can be comfortably merged with the Soviet Union. The last word of that was union, so it was merged with the Soviet Union. So what this investigation was about was Carol Reese was tasked with establishing a, a committee to investigate the major Wall Street tax-exempt foundations, the Carnegie Foundation, Ford Foundation, and Rockefeller Foundations, because they were subverting funds to uh, make us a communist nation. And Mr. Griffin has been awake to this for a very long time. So I'll start with the first question. Why do you think that this investigation was covered up? Well, I think it's uh, pretty obvious on the face of it, because even in those early days, we had people loaded throughout the federal government and to some extent the local state governments as well, who really were quite in favor of communism. That doesn't mean that they were all members of the Communist Party, but that was back in the day when people really didn't know much about communism. And uh, they thought, well, we, you know, we fought alongside the, the communists in the war against Nazi Germany, so I guess they must be okay. But um, after the war was over, I was not aware of this, by the way. I was, I was a boy during World War II, and a couple of years later, I would have been draft age, but I wasn't quite uh, ready for that. But I, I remember that um, nobody thought much about communism in the beginning because we didn't know what it was about. Then there was, uh, okay, there was a good old Uncle Joe and all, all that, Joe Stalin. And, but then I found out later that in that period, there was a lot of um, hoopla in the Hearst newspapers about what the tax-exempt foundations were doing with their grant money. And uh, they even had front page editorials on this in some of the Hearst newspapers, which uh, is very, very rare when you put editorial opinion on a headline in the, of your newspaper. And the headlines were such as um, uh, tax-exempt foundation uh, promoting communism or communist propaganda on, in a headline. And so Hearst brought this to the attention of the American people very abruptly and very dramatically by his newspaper chain. And people started finding out that, yes, it's true that the Carnegie Endowment Fund for International Peace and, uh, and the Rockefeller Foundation cluster of foundations and others were actually publishing uh, drafts of um, communist literature, speeches by, um, uh, by Joseph Stalin and by Karl Marx and praising the glories of socialism and communism. And this was being done by the t largest and most prestigious tax exempt foundations. And so the American public was up in arms about what's, the, what's this all about? And so there was this hue and cry for an investigation of the tax exempt foundations. What the heck are they up to with this communist propaganda? They're publishing this stuff. They're using their tax exempt dollars to print this stuff and distribute it all around the country send it into the schools, everywhere. So that's when the Reese Committee came into being. And uh, that's how it all, all got started. And uh, of course, I knew none of this. And it was I had to discover it very, very late, long after the fact. And um, 
So that's how, that's what it was all about, uh, Scott. And uh, so the, it wasn't just a frivolous uh, uh, witch hunt as, as the people like to call it. And so it, it revealed for the first time, I think, uh, in the open press and in the, in the uh, annals of the congressional hearings and so forth and congressional debates brought it to the forefront for public view, the fact that the federal government was loaded with people and the tax-exempt foundations were funding private groups and organizations loaded with people who were really communists at heart, believed in communism, socialism, and, um, and they, wanted to, uh, they wanted to change the American system, and they were doing everything they could to do it. And we found out later through some of those committees that were, that were formed in the wake of this awareness, and they started calling in people for interviews, people who were known to be active in promoting communist literature, uh, and they'd bring them to the witness stand and ask them questions. And a lot of them pled the Fifth Amendment, but many of them spoke openly about what they were doing. And yeah, they were. They said, yeah, we believe in communism. And that led to the realization that we had high-ranking communist members like uh, Alger Hiss, who was the uh, one of the top advisors to the President Roosevelt and uh, was very influential in drafting the UN uh, uh, Charter was very influ influential in creating the United Nations and, uh, and advised uh, President Roosevelt at Yalta when we gave away so much of uh, uh, Eastern Europe uh, to the communist regime at the end of the war. And so we discovered that later through these hearings that the whole federal government was riddled with what we would now call communists. And uh, they called themselves that too. A lot of them tried to hide it, but many of them did not. So that was uh, what that whole thing was about. And it was shocking to me and to most people to discover that even at that point so early, this whole process has was well advanced. And uh, it, well, we're not talking about two or three or four people. We're talking about, well, we don't know the exact numbers, but this is when McCarthy soon got involved in that too. And of course, they had to attack him and make him look like an idiot which, by the way, was pretty easy to do. <laughs> he was very bombastic, and uh, he wasn't, uh, you know, thinking about how his attitude. Uh, he became very irate and very uh, accusatory, and so forth. And it was not a not a good composure that he had. So they made it look like he was a raving maniac. But everything McCarthy said about communist infiltration into the federal government turned out to be true. But uh, it was easy to discredit because they had this bombastic manner about him. So anyway, that in general is, is the milieu that all of this uh, came from. And it was all news to me at the time. But uh, it was the beginning, the, the beginning of what we now see in the final stages in the government right now. The government is now, you don't have to do any investigation to see where the communists and socialists are. They're out there in the streets uh, proclaiming it and uh, proposing legislation in the halls of Congress right. uh, to advance it. It's right out in the open. So it's, uh, I guess that's all you can say on it. It was the transition and, and that was the beginning of this whole movement that now is uh, pulling America apart. Yeah, 
I mean, it seems that that is clearly the goal is the divide and conquer strategy of Satan. And uh, we're certainly seeing it now. Don, can you bring, thank you for that, Mr. Griffin. Can you bring up the first question? This is this is the only one uh, who didn't send a name. So this is a nameless uh, man, but wow. his question is fantastic. I think it's the perfect opening. Mr. Griffin, thank you for the eye-opening book, Creature from Jekyll Island. Um, instead of asking a question, I just want you to respond to a line here from another eye-opening book. And the line is, For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, and by their sorceries were all nations deceived. Thank you and God bless. Well, that so sounds, that, rather, sounds rather biblical, doesn't it? Yes, that <laughs> is Revelation 18.23. Mm -hmm. So that is the greatest book. So yeah. what is your reaction to... Well, it's one of those, 18, it's, I think it's one of those self-evident truths. There's not much to say about it except that, yep, <laughs> that's exactly what goes on. The deceivers have always been among us, I suppose. And uh, it brings up a question about us to our, the nature of Homo sapiens, the uh, his origins, his purpose, the uh, the divinity of of part of him, physical versus, you know, it brings up all those questions because you'd think that, you would think that a creature that was created would have um, the hallmark of the creator and that it, the creature that was created by the creator uh, would be exactly what the creator wanted. So that's a, that's a logical thing, but then you realize that there are a lot of those creatures that are, apparently not what the creator wanted. And that leads to a philosophical issue. I'm, I'm not really answering the question, really. I just, I'm, I'm sort of giving a free form uh, expression of what goes through my mind when I think about this. Um, I, I have come to the conclusion long ago that um, this thing we call the battle between good and evil is probably the design of the universe because everything in the universe everything as far as i can tell is made up of this uh, or obedient to this law of this law of physics that everything that exists uh, as a force has an equal and opposite force and that's why it can exist you you can't ex something can't just exist with one force in one direction without having an opposing force to keep it uh, stable. You cannot have left without right. You cannot have up without down and all of these things. You know, you cannot have good without evil because if you did, then we wouldn't know it was good. The only reason we know it's good is to compare it with the evil and so forth. So it's kind of a philosophical issue. And then you come to the conclusion that, well, why, why am I here? I'm part of this. I'm talking about myself now. Do I have good and evil in me? And um, that's another issue, which I don't really know the, the answer to that. I suspect that we have the capacity for that. But we choose. We have a, all of us make a choice, I think, as to which way we go. And whatever, whatever the answers to these unanswerable questions and issues are, we have no choice. We, we do what we are compelled to do, and we all most of us try to follow our conscience anyway. I think some people, they uh, cauterize their consciences so they, it's all scar tissue. 
but most of us, and even some of those people have those rattlings of they, oh, they know that what they're doing is not good, but they do it anyway because it's to their advantage. Sure. And so I guess what I'm trying to say in all of this is that this conflict of uh, deceivers working against mankind's best interest, I guess is part of the grand design. And uh, so we just have to sort of go with the flow and say, well, okay, that's the way it is. Uh, where am I in this battle? And nowadays it's pretty easy to uh, make a choice because the lines are so clearly drawn. You don't have to wonder which is good and which is evil. Right. Just take a look at it and your, and your conscience and your intelligence tell you very quickly and, and comprehensively, this is not good what's going on. So I don't know. I just ramble a little bit talking about it. Maybe that's not what uh, the, the, uh, gentleman with the question was looking for but anyway he mentioned something that triggered all these thoughts in my mind and uh, i think these are thoughts that we need to we need to deal with well i agree i mean satan's or one of satan's key tricks is deception you know that happened all the way back in the garden and what you referenced in the great awakening film which i've come to believe also is is you know when we look at good versus evil so evil being what Satan represents, good what God represents, evil what Satan has convinced us of very um, creatively is to look at the evil and lesser evil. So when we go to the voting booth, I think you mentioned that, I'm positive you mentioned in the, in the Great Awakening film, we're voting for the lesser of two evils. We're never voting for good. And Satan has, has really been masterful at, at um, creating that concept. All right, Don, can you bring up the next question? This is from Allison. Hi, Mr. Griffin, my name is Allison, and I first wanna thank you so much for your longtime work for humanity, truth, and freedom. It is very much appreciated. I have two quick questions. One is, how do you think we can engage and involve more people in these issues? And two, through the time that you have done this work, do you feel that there are more and more people opening their eyes and more and more people engaged? Do you have hope in our efforts? Yes, uh, two excellent questions. And I, I think that those are the questions that many people have in their mind because the answer to the first one is sort of a segue to the answer to the second one. Um, how do you involve more people? And then assuming that you are successful in doing that, then there's hope of winning this battle. So, right. um, okay, well, how do we do it? I don't really know, except that we just have to keep trying and we'll discover the way. I think there are many ways and, um, and you never know until you try. I think that's the secret. Um, you, you don't wait until you've got it all figured out before you try it. You try it and then you figure it out while you're trying it. So you have to make a lot of mistakes. I certainly have in uh, my years. I started off these, uh, this battle, this struggle against evil, I like to call it that, um, being kind of an alarmist, you know, because it was all new information to me. I had none of this when I came through school. So as I began to find it and discover it on my own journey, it was very alarming. 
And each each new discovery was more alarming than the previous one because I thought, oh, this is worse than I thought, you know. Right. Oh, my golly, this is really bad. Oh, oh are we going to survive this? Uh, you know, and uh, that's been still going on, actually. And uh, in the very beginning, I became kind of, um, I suppose the word would be obnoxious. Um, I would... I, wrote, I broke up a lot of cocktail parties in my day, you know, by switching over to, to conversations that were controversial and, uh, and conversations where I had a strong opinion, which was probably not probably, but definitely not the uh, consensus of the group that I was in. And uh, my wife would say to me, Edward, you're, you're scaring people away, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I would go up to people and, Figuratively, I'd be grabbing them by the lapels and say, don't you know, and read this book and so forth. And I, not literally, but that was my attitude. I thought, well, how come these people are so apathetic? Why don't they get off their fat bottoms and do something? And uh, of course, I scared away a lot of people doing that. You can't just back up the truck, pull the lever and dump the whole load on top of somebody. They'll never dig their way out from the pile that you dumped on them. So how do you reach people without alienating them when you have to essentially tell them that they're misinformed? Nobody wants to hear that. Even if they know in their heart that it's true, you don't want to have somebody say, oh, you're a dummy. Uh, how come you don't know this? And, you know, if you, if you really paid attention, you would know that what I'm saying is true. No. And I think so the answer to the question, how do we reach more people is that we have to calm down a little bit and uh, at least I'm speaking for myself I had to calm down quite a bit before I started to uh, have converts and people who would say well yeah I think I agree with you after all and uh, a little knowledge doesn't help so I think once sometimes you you get over rambunctious with your story uh, the more you're not sure about the details you might be rock solid on the uh, the question of whether you're right or wrong. But when it comes to details of explaining and proving to a skeptic that you're right, you might be a little bit short. And so then you get, you raise your voice to cover the fact that uh, you really wish you had more facts. And uh, I think we all fall prey to that sort of thing as we go along this thing. So back to the question, what do you do? How do you reach more people? I don't think there's one answer to all of that. I think, the, in general, I would say, become as well-informed as you can. Spend a lot of time learning details so that you become a quasi-expert. At least you can't be fooled by the, the cheap uh, shots, the, the, um, the deceptions that they throw at you. You know, oh, that's a trick question. Here's, the, here's why it's a trick question. I'll give you the straight answer. You, gotta, you have to know your topic, so you have to study. You have to dedicate a significant part of your your life to learning about these issues so that you can talk intelligently about them. And then you have to calm down and remember that uh, if you can't laugh along the way, you're not, it's probably not worth doing. But secondly, if you can laugh even at yourself, especially at yourself, perhaps, it makes you more accessible and people want to be around you more than if you're, uh, you're standing up there on the pulpit and, uh, preaching and saying, listen to me. And if you don't do this, you're, you're going to hell or something like that. So it's kind of a psychological game. It's an informational game. It's a game of patience, mainly patience, I suppose, and being 
on it all the time. Never let up. You've got to inform your fellow human beings on this spaceship called Earth because we're all on board the same spaceship and uh, we need them. They need us. So you can't alienate anybody if you know that you, if you have to, of course, you will. But just be aware that uh, people have to be moved slowly to this this awareness of this huge problem we have to just wake up and some like I had to wake up at one day and I had to realize that this wasn't the America I thought we were living in. I used to, you know, I hear the Star Spangled Banner and I'd see this Pledge of Allegiance to the flag and I was all filled with patriotism and I I I loved my country. I still do, by the way. But it was hard for me to realize that the country that I really revered was no longer represented by our government. And it was hard for me to break these two thoughts apart to distinguish the difference between our country and our government. I did know that our country was all of the good people out there, the good and the bad, but it was predominantly good. And we had a great heritage. We were the first nation in the world to have this, this concept of, of, um, of a state that was not our master, but our servant, and how fortunate we were to be born into that system and all that. But then I didn't want to accept the fact that that was gone. I I wanted to believe it was still there and it was hard. And I think the people we're trying to reach are probably going through that same problem right now. It's hard to realize that the the system that we cherished and this thing we call our country doesn't exist anymore, at least at the government level. Now it's still there among the people. And our job of course, is to turn that around so that the people again are dominant and not the, not the minority of the rulers at the top. So how do you back to the question? How do you reach more people? I suppose the, the answer just to keep at it and to be self-aware of that. You don't want to alienate people and get your facts straight. And don't ever, ever, ever give up. And then the fact, the second question is, are we seeing more people wake up? Of course we are. And um, that's because things are getting worse. And it's easy to, it's easy to realize that um, you're on the Niagara River and there's a huge waterfall ahead. It's easier to realize that when you can hear it. <laughs> you're getting closer yeah. to it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, what is that roaring sound? Uh-oh. So yeah, you wake up. You're not on that peaceful little river anymore. So yeah. that's a good and a bad thing. It's good because it's uh, waking people up. They better get that paddle uh, going on their little boat and get out of the mainstream and change the direction of the of the mo- motion of the boat that they're in or they're going over the the edge. So that wakes them up. But the other the bad part is that the, the roar is getting louder and louder and the time is running out for us to to make that change. So it's exciting times to live in, I would say, wouldn't you? And I'm glad we live in these times. I'm, I wouldn't want to live in any other time right now because just think about it. This gives us a chance to really make a difference uh, for the future. Things are going to change and we can if we, if we work correctly and hard enough and correctly especially. And, Uh, We can actually make a difference for future generations. We can win this war. I really like that answer. I mean, urgency with grace. Uh, I was listening to Mike Adams last week, and he said the battle is for the people in the middle. 
And I think that that's right. And uh, Vera Sherev, who I've been working with uh, for almost a year now, I talked with her last week and she said, Scott, our side is gaining, their side is losing. And it's true with that battle of the people in the middle, you know, it's obvious they need to come to our side, which uh, you did a great job with that question. All right, the next one is from Gail. Don, you can roll that. Hi, Mr. Griffin. My name is Gail. Your book, The Creature of Jekyll Island, changed my life forever and my understanding of money. In the meantime, can you help me understand the relationship between the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party and the World Health Organization, AKA the WHO? Thank you. What is the difference between the Chinese Communist Party and the World Economic Forum? Well, she, well, actually, I, she actually was asking the connection between the commun Chinese Communist Party and the World Health Organization, but the World Economic Forum is also- Oh, okay, I, I, was, I heard it wrong. And the World Health Organization. Okay, thank you for correcting me. You're welcome. That, well, that sort of takes the steam out of my answer I was going to give, because I had a great answer. To well, I think you should answer. I think you should answer both because they're both relevant. Well, I have to. I have to answer the question that was not asked because I got a good answer for it. <laughs> <laughs> the difference between the Chinese Communist Party and the World Economic Forum is the language that they speak. One is Chinese, and one is apparently is English. Uh, although with Klaus Schwab, it's it's hardly recognizable as English. It sounds very German, and a special type of Germanic accent, which you expect to hear from Doctor No in a James Bond movie. You know? <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> so that's right. that was the facetious answer. Now, what's the difference between the, the Chinese Communist Party and the World Health Organization? Well, she was really wanting to know the relationship between those two. I mean, it seems like a very direct relationship to me, but, you know, you're the expert. Well, I yeah, I think there are probably a couple of ways you could approach that. <clears throat> I see it always. <clears throat> I tend to go to the to the bedrock, if I can, the, the, the where everything comes together, that the foundation of these things. And I think the foundation is what is their objectives? Um, now, you would think that the Chinese Communist Party, you could say, well, that's a, it's a communist party, it's a political party, or it's a social movement, an economic movement. It's, it's very, um, has to do with social relationships and political movements and so forth. Whereas uh, World Health Organization, you would think is all about health, you would think, but that's not true. They're both interested in the same thing, which is the control over the population. And they just have different, uh, avenues and different uh, formulae for obtaining that control. The Chinese Communist Party, like any other political party, which is uh, more concerned about its own dominance and its own ability to control the nation rather than obey the nation or, or serve the nation. They want to control the nation. And most states, most governments soon evolve into that kind of a of a structure, uh, give it enough time at least, they evolve or devolve into criminal syndicates. Why? Because they can. 
Why? Why can they? Because people want them to. Uh, it sounds like a shocking statement, but they do because they want governments to solve all their problems. Right. So they want to give the power and money to these governments supposedly to solve problems, but that gives them the power to become criminal syndicates too. And they never realized that uh, giving the power to even good men is deadly because the good men can be corrupted and those that cannot be corrupted eventually die off and are replaced by younger men who can be corrupted. It's just a question of time before the concentration of power and money corrupts those who are given that power and, and money. And so when you ask for a government to be big and strong and solve all the problems and build everything and provide for housing and health care and education and fight wars besides and all those things, well, then you're just saying, please become a crime, a crime syndicate. Right. And uh, so I, that's the foundation, as I see it. You look at the World Health Organization, it's a crime syndicate. You look at the Chinese Communist Party, it's a criminal syndicate. It's a organized crime. And you look at um, what's happened to the governments in all countries, including ours, they're crime syndicates. And so that's my answer to the question. You give any group, whether it's the two that were mentioned or any others, you give them huge access to uh, large amounts of money and power, you are creating a, a criminal syndicate. Yep, that's that's right spot on. The second law of thermodynamics is in operation from both sides, the government side and the people side. And if we don't protect what we started with, it always degrades. And always. that's where we're at today. All right, Don, the next question is from Andrew. Actually, two questions. Hi, Mr. Griffin. My name is Andrew and I'm calling from New York City. From the Federal Reserve to the JFK assassination to 9-11 to COVID-19, what do you think is the through line that connects all of these psyops and what is the ultimate end goal? I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the role that uh, historical figures like General Curtis LeMay and others like him played or might not have played or could have played in the American 20th century and the impact or legacy that they left behind. So he wants to know how all these psyops are tied together and then the impact of historical figures in the United States. What what was their role in all of these psyops? Boy, I'm having trouble uh, finding the thread on that. Um, I imagine this chap's name was Andrew. Did I remember that correctly? Anyway, I imagine he has something Andrew, very Andrew, yes. I, I imagine he has something very specific in mind, and I'm trying to figure out what that would be. Psyops, of course, uh, that means that there are people in these we're talking about criminal syndicates now. Um, you could, I suppose you could uh, say that there's a, a, um, a governmental system in place to protect the liberties of people who would use psyops against an enemy. Yeah, like you say, okay, that would be justified, you might say, to deceive an enemy because you're trying to preserve, uh, protect your, your own nation and your own culture, your own country your heritage. So you could make a case for using a uh, psyops in that case, but now that's not what we're talking about. That, that doesn't happen. And at least not in my lifetime, it hasn't happened. So the psyops are being used against our own people. The governments are using against their own people, not the enemy. They consider their own people uh, to be potentially the enemy. And uh, so that changes everything. 
So I don't know what the connection is, except that it's an indication, perhaps. It's like uh, looking at somebody who has uh, developed uh, chicken pox or the mumps. You can tell by looking at their face that they've got the chicken pox or the mumps. So you look and you see when a government is using psyops against its own people, it's a criminal syndicate. And we're back to that again. Right. And that's where my mind is going with this. So um, I think any time a government or the state, maybe a better word, uh, uses uh, propaganda or psy operations, psychological operations against its own people, you, it's, an, it's a sign that the people have already lost control over their own uh, their own structure that they supposedly created. And it's time, if it's not too, already too late, to get busy and, and to recapture the sovereignty that the people should have over the people, the other people who are being employed by them to serve them. It's a, it's a, it's a wake-up call. When you've got PSYOPs operations being used against the people, the people had better wake up real fast and stop it. Otherwise, they're going to go full form and they'll wind up being total slaves. Well, I certainly agree with that. You know, as I've been processing, I was not awake until after Grace died. And as I've been processing this, I see a world without God is the common thread that I see. And, you know, so if I didn't believe in God, I would come up with these psyops of climate control and population control, and then I'd figure out a way to implement them. And, um, you know, that's, I think it's um, it's predictable. I mean, the Bible says we're inherently bad and uh, none of us are good by nature. So we're going to gravitate that way if we don't believe in God. Uh, Don, can you bring up Dr. Susie Harris? She's our next, has our next question. Hello, Mr. Griffin. My name is Dr. Susie Harris, and I wondered if you had any advice for independent health providers. <laughs> yeah, well, the advice is to continue continuing, you know, uh, that we need more independent health care providers. The advice would be uh, be strong, um, be full of energy, be optimistic, be assertive, even be aggressive if necessary. You're fighting against the Goliath there, uh, the behemoth. And uh, the advice is uh, don't stop. Go faster, work harder, gather together more people to your ranks and, and replicate yourself and go forth and conquer. That's how, that's my advice. It just, obviously you are, I would say you, it's pretty obvious that you are one of those uh, independent healthcare providers. So congratulations on that and, uh, and encourage others to do likewise. That's the future, uh, that's the part of the future of our liberty, is to have independent and, and legitimate health care. Health care, not profit care in the name of health. I, you know, of course, that's the one that speaks nearest to me. And we, we put a um, resource on Grace's website, the ouramazinggrace.net site, and there's a resource tab. And on the resource tab, we have a link to the wedge, which is across the country, independents who are they're broken away from the conventional medical system and starting their own. And most of them are cash operations, which that's the way it's going to be. I mean, big insurance combined with big pharma and the hospital systems, they're all in bed with each other. So you've got to break away completely and realize your clientele are going to be paying with 
with cash. And that is by far and away the biggest propaganda to break because people are used to insurance and Obamacare. And if my insurance doesn't pay, I don't, you know, I'm not interested. All right, the next question, this one I really like because it broaches the topic of collectivism, which has become one of my favorites since meeting you. This is by Dr. Rob Williams. Go ahead, Don. Hello, Mr. Griffin, Dr. Rob Williams here. I'm wondering if you might be able to give us just a couple of practical tips for how each of us can challenge collectivism here in the United States moving forward. Thank you. Practical tips. That narrows the field considerably because most of us are living in the world of ideology and and debate and uh, and uh, logic and uh, historical analysis and convincing somebody that individualism is far superior to collectivism. But a practical tip, I like that, but it's a challenge for me to to get my head around what would be a practical tip. Well, I suppose practicality means that you have to do something that is in physical evidence of the superiority of individualism over collectivism. What would that be? What would that look like? Um, well, I suppose it starts right there with your own family instead of running out to the, to the government for a handout every time you need something. Oh, all right, all right, I got, here's a, one, I guess if I can come up with one practical tip, I've asked, I've answered the question, so I'll, I'll reach for that one. Homeschooling, let's oh, go for wow. that. I can't think of a better example than breaking out of, of the majority rule type of environment where you have to go along to get along and don't make waves and don't question authority you go to uh, homeschooling, as, as most of them, I think, are, are operated. You, you can't do any of those things. You have to be fairly independent and self-sustaining. And the very operation of that whole system uh, carries with it the hidden message that this is good. This is the way everything should be done. So I would say uh, that would be the best practical tip. Is there another one? What do you think, Don? Uh, I mean, uh, Scott, what are we going to do? Do well, on you too. Come on in. <laughs> you hit. Uh, I wasn't expecting you to hit the number one. I I wouldn't. Uh, you know this this topic is on my mind constantly because Grace was taken out because of the spirit of collectivism. You know she was murdered because of that whole idea. Down syndrome people are not welcomed on the planet because they're not productive citizens, right? Mm -hmm. So you know that topic has been on my mind a lot. Uh, but homeschooling, you knocked it out of the park with that answer. I mean, we homeschooled. My daughter, Jessica, just started homeschooling this year. And it is, um, you know, people have a perception. They think, well, I don't have any training. I can't do that. And if you think about what is the most important thing for you to know in life or things to know in life, after you know God, for you to function in this life, you need to be able to do simple math in your head. You need to be able to communicate both written and orally, and you need to have work ethic. You know, those are, you know, they're fairly basic. And, you know, at this point, basic arithmetic in your head is not taught in school anymore. Uh, 
writing and oral communication skills are essentially not taught in school anymore. And the idea of work ethic, you know, it is a dependent system on the on the government. So, you know, homeschooling, people think, well, the person's sheltered, they're only as sheltered as the parents want them to be. Grace got so much exposure, you know, every day my wife, my my wife put on roughly 30,000 miles a year on her vehicle with all the things that she was doing with Grace homeschooling. So it it was um it was a gift to homeschool and you don't need any special training to do it. It's, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's an exciting opportunity. So I can't, uh, I can't say enough about it. Great answer. All right. The next one is from Charlene. This is, this is a very important question. It's also been on my mind. Hey, Mr. Griffin, Charlene Sansoni from Sedona, Arizona question for you. What is geoengineering and how can we make sense of this phenomenon? Thanks. Hmm. Geoengineering. Well, I, my immediate response in my mind to that question is that geoengineering has at least two um, levels of existence. First of all, it's the idea that the, the planet's climate and its natural resources have to be engineered by man, carefully conserved and administered for the benefit of the larger group. And we're back to collectivism again, but it's our obligation to engineer or to control and direct the forces of nature and so at some level that makes sense if it's uh, if the idea is that we're trying to conserve nature and not uh, go against the laws of nature but that's the, that's sort of the facade of what it's all about we we don't want global warming to burn up the planet we don't want global cooling to freeze it up so we have to depend on scientists and engineers to to do certain things to the to the planet supposedly in the best interest of society and best interest of humanity. So that's the, that's the one view of geoengineering. It's a very benevolent and logical thing. The other view is that it's total bunk. It's deceptive. It's propaganda. It's, it's a deception to, to provide a gloss of virtue for actions which are totally destructive and all of which would, we would not approve of if we understood them indirectly. And uh, so I, it has that dual nature to it. And when you run into it in daily life, it's usually in that second category. They're, they pretend to be doing things to, to protect nature, to preserve uh, the natural environments and the balance of nature and for the benefit of humanity and other animals as well. But when you look at the actions of the great uh, geoengineers, engineering people out there, the, none of those actions turn out to be good for anybody right. or anything, especially least of all the planet. So uh, you have to be suspicious that they might have other agendas in mind. And then when you look carefully at that, you find, aha, they do have other agendas at, in mind. And we, we know what those agendas are. They're looking for plausible excuses to take control over the daily lives of all of us 
and to control us both economically and socially and intellectually and emotionally. And um, they you always have to have some good excuse to protect us against some catastrophe. Catastrophe would be, uh, well, in this case, environmental destruction. Uh, the weather has to be controlled so we don't destroy crops and destroy lives and so forth. So it's all for our good, you see. Uh, but then there are other, they have to be protected against terrorism and against uh, uh, bioweapons and against um, pornography and against invasion and, and, and against, um, well, you name it. You, you, the list is quite long and they keep inventing new ones all the time. I'm, I'm beginning to think they're getting ready to try and pr protect us against an alien invasion one of these days. And they'll probably make that look pretty convincing, even though it'll be totally phony like most of these other things. So that's, uh, that's how I look at geoengineering. It has a good and a bad side to it. And the bad side is much more prevalent than the good side. Yeah. Well, yeah. A lot like AI, you know, the first time I even heard of geoengineering is the first time I met you, which was last July at the red pill expo in, um, I think it was in Indianapolis, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, uh, there was a lady there that spoke about uh, hydrogel and chemtrails. And you know, I had, you know, again, I was not awake till after Grace died. So all this stuff was new to me. And I listened to my first podcast on geoengineering uh, a month or two ago. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you, you start... You know, it's a rabbit hole that I could have gone down. I chose to not do it. I just put it on the side saying that, yeah, this is this is a big deal. And uh, but I have my own lane that I'm in and I can't I can't get distracted by that. So uh, this last question is, um, I think, is maybe the most important short term because cancer rates are going to explode. They're already high, but they're going to explode because of the jab. And I've been doing some diving into cancer because my wife's brother uh, was just diagnosed with cancer. Um, I had Dr. Brzezinski on my podcast uh, about a month ago. And so, Don, can you bring up this last question from Dave, please? My name is Dave Tempen from Appleton, Wisconsin. Hello, Scott and Mr. Griffin. What an honor. I saw a 55-minute documentary on YouTube. World Without Cancer, the story of vitamin B17, and I have the book. I also take apricot kernels. Would you please comment? Thank you. He wants your comment about a world without cancer. Obviously, you wrote the book, and you're familiar with the B17 uh, message, but you know, I'd, I'd like your overall view of what is the cause of cancer and what can we do about it so that the propaganda that is in place, you know, anybody listening to this would could stop it in their tracks? You know, it's kind of embarrassing to get questions like that, but I get them all the time because naturally these are big, big issues with people. Cancer now affects almost every, every family is affected by it. And right. uh, the cancer rate keeps going up. I think one in, one in every two people now, or certainly one in every three, will have cancer in their lifetime. And uh, as you correctly pointed out, now that these so-called vaccines are destroying our immune system, uh, the cancer rates are going up, 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 and they're going to continue to going up. Okay, so the question is, what is cancer? Well, uh, the reason I'm embarrassed by these questions is because I'm the last person in the world normally you would think that it would have 
be entitled to even have a, an opinion on that. I mean, I have no no background in school. I did. I haven't gone through medical school. I, I if you had asked me that question when I was 35 years old, I would have said, duh, well, cancer, you know what that is. And that's when you get a lump or bump or something. And if you get a lump or bump, you go to the doctor and say, fix it. That's what cancer is. That was about the depth of it. So uh, the same thing went with the uh, story of the Federal Reserve System. Who am I to, to write a book on banking and money? My gosh, this is a huge topic. But um, the reason I'm bringing that up is because I found out that these big, big, tough areas of uh, knowledge are not as big and as tough as you might think once you really get into them. Like so many things, the aura of confusion, aura of complexity is blown away once you dig down and find out some fundamental facts. And then if you're correct on those facts and you understand that they really apply, it's not just a little bit, but they apply totally, then so 90% of the confusion factors is blown away by it. Now, let me give you an example. What is cancer? I believe from my research and what I was taught by the doctors and researchers who really do know about these things, and they taught me. I was their student. I read their books. I spent many, 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 many hours talking with some of the top researchers and practitioners in the field of cancer. And I learned the lingo. I learned what the words mean. I learned what the concepts meant. And I came to the conclusion that the people I was talking to were right. And now this is their view that they talked to me. Cancer is not caused by something. Cancer is caused by the lack of something. Just like scurvy is not caused by a, a bug that lurks in the dark holes of ships, like they used to think because sailors got scurvy. So they were on these ships and they were down in the holds. And so they, that's obviously what causes scurvy, something down in the hold. And then of course they discovered it was the lack of vitamin C. Cancer is exactly the same way. It's caused by the lack of not just one thing, but primarily one thing, but could be the lack of many things. And once you grab hold of that fact that it's, it's the lack of something that's in nature and should be very easy for us to have access to if we're open to it and our minds and eyes are open, then maybe all of this expensive and complex therapy that is not working very well, actually, at all, maybe all the therapy is wrong as well. And that's where you come out the other side, is that, yes, in my view, the therapy is wrong. And uh, just like today, the vaccines are not the, not the way to treat the symptoms of COVID. Uh, because the therapy is wrong based on the wrong idea of what, what COVID really is and what the disease is. There are a lot of analogies. So what is cancer? All right, what is this thing that's lacking? I'm trying to make this simple and yet still valid. When You, you can oversimplify, which I'm going to do right now. 
but still the principles underneath it, I believe, are valid. Cancer is the healing process. It's nothing to be feared. It's something you have to have. It's the healing process that has gotten out of whack. The healing process is a, a beautiful mechanism whereby the body detects cells that are destroyed or being weakened, and they have to be replaced by new healthy cells. It's a process. It's a healthy process whereby old cells are eliminated and new cells are regenerated and they begin to grow and they replace the old cells. Now, that process is well understood in medicine, I discovered. There are textbooks written on it, and it's a beautiful concept. I don't think anybody really understands it, but they can observe it and describe it, and they give, give names to the various components, and they sound very wise. But you come down to the end product, you think, that's a miracle. How to, oh, man, that's, there's so many moving parts on this process that we, humans would never understand it. But at least we can observe it. The, the embryo development and the role of estrogen playing all that. So I go back to the, what I said, it's the healing process. I scratch my hand right now with my fingernails. And even though I can't see it, I've removed perhaps hundreds of little tiny skin cells. And already as I'm speaking, my body knows that and it is sending out electrical and chemical signals to my entire system through the the neurological pathways first, saying, hey guys, we got to replace these cells. This idiot just scratched some off of his hand and we got to replace them. So here we go again. And so the system starts to, first thing it does, it sends little trace amounts of estrogen. Uh, yes, estrogen. Men have estrogen as part of the healing process. And it causes cellular growth, as you might expect it, it would in, in female pregnancy and so forth. It's all part of that embryonic process on a, at a different level. And uh, I discovered this. I thought, oh, my, isn't that, what a miracle this is. So this body begins to generate new cells. And it knows, with, we tend to call these stem cells now, because they can become any cell in your body. In the embryo stage, they're called... Uh, diploid totipotent cells. They had diploid, meaning you got double chromosomes. And uh, in the beginning, there are just so many divisions and they got double chromosomes and they can become any cell in the body, brain, eye, tooth, nose, anything. And um, they, they differentiate into those cells. Well, okay, the same thing is happening when this body starts to repair that scratching and loss of cells. And now all of a sudden, Maybe in a couple of days, all those cells have grown back and I got brand new cells now. And the system says, okay, blow the whistle, stop, healing is over. Now what happens if some, for some reason, the healing process is deficient in some little trace mineral? Who knows what it is? Or, or a vitamin or something found in nature. Trace amount, we don't even know what it is, but it, the body needs it. And what if it's missing? Something is missing, remember. Cancer is the lack of something. What if this something is missing and it doesn't stop healing? It overheals. And the first thing you know, you've got a lump or a bump. And what is that? Oh, it's an overhealing. It's not a disease. It's something wrong with your mechanism because it didn't have the right fuel or the right components to stop the healing process. Now, 
Bear in mind, I'm oversimplifying this greatly, but the principle underneath it, I believe, is 100% accurate. Cancer is a natural process not to be feared, but to be supported in by nutrients that we need so that it performs uh, correctly and doesn't go into overdrive. It's the overdrive that is caused by damage and so forth, uh, old age, cells die. Cancer always arises where it's necessary to replace damaged cells. And that's the healing process that doesn't quite work anymore the way it should. Now, once you get that picture, and if it's correct, as I believe it is, then this whole field of cancer therapy and everything gets really, really simple. Most of the, pardon my French, I almost said the wrong word. Most of the stuff that they use to treat cancer with is destructive. It doesn't help the body repair damage. It causes damage. It's because it's based on the wrong concept. It's based on cancer has to be killed. It's like, uh, you know, we got a, uh, a pandemic and we got a virus, we got to kill it. And so we load the body up with all these toxins and things that are going to kill cells. Is it, is it surprising that people die? when you load them up with toxic things that are designed to kill cells? No, it's not surprising at all. Supposing you try and find those things that help regenerate and create fresh cells, not kill them, but to create them. Now you have a whole different view of medicine, a completely different view of medicine. And that is my answer to what is cancer? Cancer is part of the natural healing process. And if we just open our minds and understand it as such, there's no such thing as, uh, uh, and no such reason to worry about cancer because it can be controlled by restoring those things that the body is needing in order to complete the healing process. Now, what are those things? The main one is a nutrient. It's called amygdalin. And it's found in about 1,400 edible plants. And in cultures in, around the world where cancer is rare or never heard of, like in fabled Hunza, the Hunzikuts in northwest Pakistan, up in the mountains, um, never had cancer. People lived to be 120 years old in that community. It was well known, hard to get into the into the valley where those people lived. It's very dangerous getting through the ravines and so forth. And uh, but actually, those people are very primitive society. They don't have anything like money, and they use apricot seeds, apricot trees, apricots as money. They grow a lot of apricots up there. And they eat apricot seeds like you and I would eat bonbon, candy. They love it. Apricot seeds are loaded with amygdalin. Every, every place in the world that you go where there is, it's famous for having low or zero cancer rates, like the Hunzikuts or the, or the uh, Navajo Indians in America, uh, the uh, Vilcambabos. Uh, there are places that are historically have low or zero cancer rate. You look at their native diets. Oh, even the Aboriginal Eskimos up in the, in the Arctic, they have practically no cancer on their native diet. But when they were hired by the military, the men were hired and went to work on the dew line up there to build Quonset huts, to build radar systems, to protect us against rockets coming over from Russia and so forth. And they started feeding these, these, uh, Eskimos, the same food that they fed to the American soldiers, they started coming down with cancer. So you look at all of these places in the world where cancer is not a concern and look at their diets and you find it is rich in this thing called amygdalin. So why don't we all eat amygdalin? 
It's because it's bitter. If you chew into an apple seed, it's bitter. And what you're tasting is, well, you're actually tasting the benzaldehyde, I believe. But along with it, that's the taste that comes with the, uh, uh, with the amygdalin. And it's bitter. So why would you want to eat bitter stuff? So if you live in an affluent society and you can afford to have your food processed and preserved and, and loaded with chemicals and all that sort of thing, which are toxic, many of them. So you're adding to your body's need to heal the, the toxicity kills cells. Now you need to replace those cells, but you don't have the amygdalin that it's needed. It is needed to replace the cells. So you created a double whammy for yourself. You've, you've talk, you, you toxinated yourself or toxified yourself and you've denied yourself the healing, the thing that's lacking you, the healing component to uh, replace the cells. Now that I took too long to answer it, but I think you get the idea. When you boil down to the essentials of what cancer is, cancer is a man-made disease because he's ignorant as to how the body works and how it should work. That's a fantastic answer. I mean, it, it, the two things that that come out of it, one is big picture for me is that when you see how the body is made, you wonder why why don't people believe in God? Because it's it's truly a miracle how our body is made. And then second is I just read an article after I had Dr. Brzezinski on about the success rate of what we've been programmed to believe, which is chemo and radiation. And the, the overall success rate of chemo and radiation in the article I read was only 3%. Um, but yet that's what we are programmed to believe. And then when you go to the doctor and he gives you the bad news, then, you know, once, once you realize it, your first question is, does, does my insurance cover it? <laughs> and, you know, and you end up signing your death certificate that day. And, you know, what you just said, you just, the, the main thing that you said is the perspective we have of cancer is wrong. And yeah. once you see that, and that's why your answer needed to be long. Once you have the right perspective, then you see what the need is. So, and so then what I, I, I did meet in the July Red Pill Expo, the son of the man who invented or who discovered what you're talking about, the B-17. And so they have put that in a capsule format um, for those of us that can't get apricot seeds um, very easily. So that is the acceptable uh, methodology, I presume. Have you looked into that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, the commercial name given to it is called Laetril. Yes. And that was the name given to it by Dr. Ernst T. Krebs Jr. He was the pioneer. And you're speaking about the son of Dr. John Richardson. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Thank you. Now, Richardson was a practitioner, a good friend of mine. And he in fact, he was the one that introduced me to this whole uh, topic. He was saving lives using amygdalin, but they called it laetril. And uh, laetril is kind of a high-octane version of amygdalin. It's amygdalin, basically. But uh, usually, it, it doesn't take much, by the way. My observation is that the body doesn't need a lot of this stuff. If you just have a little bit of amygdalin, I, I believe anybody that eats a couple of apricots, maybe two seeds, a day or five or six seeds a week. That's it. You know, that's it. But now if you have clinical cancer, 
you've got, you're really struggling now for your life and you're riddled with cancer. You need more than that. And that's where the Laetrile comes in. They need to concentrate it. And one little pill would be 500 milligrams of amygdalin, whereas one apricot seed might have four or seven milligrams. So when you need a lot of it in, in a clinical case, then you, you, you go to the pills and the tablets and so forth. That but for sense. most people, just for prevention, that's what it's supposed to be is prevention, not cure. You're supposed not to get this stuff. Right. And uh, you don't need much of it. And an apricot seed or two a day uh, now and then is, is ample. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I, I have one uh, question I'm curious on before I go into closing, which is what do you think about RFK Jr. jumping in the presidential race? Well, that's a question I've been asked a lot lately, uh, and uh, I don't know what to think of it. First of all, I'm delighted that uh, he is bringing to the fore the information that he is. He's very courageous in bringing it to the yeah. fore. And this is wonderful because he's a celebrity, right? And so people seem to think that if a celebrity says something, it's worth listening to. And I go for that. I'm, I'm the same way. I, I listen to celebrities. Um, so um, that is good. And he's right on target on everything I've been able to read. His book is loaded with factual information. As far as I can tell, I haven't found anything yet. Maybe I will, but one out of uh, 500,000 facts that's wrong, I suppose is not, not a bad record, but I haven't found one yet. So it's, I'm delighted at that. The wow. thing that I still am waiting for is just to find out what, uh, his positions are on other equally important matters, such as our national sovereignty, our banking system, our economics. Is he, does he believe in collectivism? You know, we don't talk about that. I want to know those things, and I'm sure his answers would be good, but I have not heard them yet. So that's my short answer to your question. Well, thank you. I, I think it's refreshing. I, I know he was on Joe Rogan last week. I'm going to be listening to that podcast tomorrow. I have a long drive in front of me, so it's a three-hour podcast. I wanted to uh, get that under my belt, so thank you for that. I want to wrap up by emphasizing um, the idea of getting moving. All of us need to take some action, and you were on a podcast uh, a couple weeks ago. I don't even remember how I got wind of it, but I'm going to have Don play a short clip and then I'm going to move into closing after that clip. But the emphasis is on doing something. And this is you on a podcast within the last couple of weeks. So go ahead, Don, you can roll that one. Well, well that is that really, that is kind of the trick of life, isn't it? Is to learn what it's all about. Learning is the most gratifying and uh, probably the only meaningful uh, thing we do in this life is to learn about something and of course, then the other half is if you discover that what you learned is is not going well for for you or for mankind or for the universe or whatever, wherever your mind happens to be, then the next object is to do something about it. And that's where it really gets interesting, because first of all, you have to figure out, well, why am I here and what's my purpose and how did all this come about? And it takes a long time. And then the first thing you know, you wind up being as old as I am. And you say, oh, my gosh, I think I got it. But it's too late now. You know, you're out of time thinking about it. And you, I, my advice would be for younger people to don't think too much about it. Just get on with it and do it. 
I just uh, I just enjoyed that when I heard you say that. And I, it reminded me back when I was younger. I'm 60 years old now, but I had heard about Armand Hammer, at least a legend. And a young person asked him, uh, what are the two secrets to all success? And he said, there's only two things. One is uh, write down what you want to do and second, do it. And I see that as um, very much lacking today. And I, I think we have a call to action like there has never been before. The time is urgent. And, you know, the the most Im important thing of all, the urgency is if you're not right with God, now is the time. You know, Jesus died, was buried, and rose again on the third day so that whoever believes in him will be reconciled to the Father and have eternal life. And what happens when you come to grips with that is you have a spirit of repentance. And that is one warning I've been sharing, and I want to close with that warning. You know, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And there is a spirit of anti-establishment that is happening in our country, which um by itself isn't wrong because we've got to we've got to change things but what i don't see is the spirit of repentance in that anti-establishment movement and we got here because of rejecting god and we let it happen to ourselves and so if we want god involved with the path out of here his hands are tied until we repent and i i can't emphasize that enough the solutions that Satan is going to offer will all circle around security and comfort because that is what we um, gravitate toward. We want things easy. As Mr. Griffin said earlier, we want the government to take care of us. And uh, I, I beg everybody listening to not fall for that trap. So Mr. Griffin, before we close, I want to have you have the last word, anything that you want to say. Well, I think I probably have already uh, spent too much time saying things, but I should have said it in a more precise manner. But um, the thing that pops into mind right now is something I mentioned earlier in our discussion. I think we should, I think we should be thankful for the fact that we're living in these troubled times. It's hard to figure that one out. Why would we want to live in troubled times. Well, because it's only in times of turmoil that changes are made. That's... And you don't make changes unless you have to undo something that's going wrong. And that's turbulent times we live in. And I, I guess it would be fun just to live a, a nice, peaceful life and, and not have to worry about uh, what's happening to your country and all that sort of wars and famine and disease and terrorism and all of these things that might be nice, but in keeping with the idea that I advanced early in our conversation, that everything has got to be balanced by an equal and opposite force before it becomes real. If we lived in quiet, peaceful times, we probably wouldn't, appreciate the fact that they were quiet and peaceful because we wouldn't know what anything else. We might even become bored with it. We might become useless. We might not strive to do anything because it's too easy just to exist. I think that would be horrible. So back to the point, my final thought is that I'm glad to live in these times and I hope I can live long enough to lay a few more bricks 
in the foundation of what we're building for the future. I, I don't think either of us are gonna see the completion of this structure of liberty that we're talking about and abundance and brotherhood and reverence. We're not gonna see that in our lifetime, but we can lay the bricks and then the ones that come after us will put some more bricks on top of that. And when I, I put that in my mind as I go to sleep at nights and sometimes when I think about it, I go to sleep with a smile on my face because I laid another brick today. You are, uh, you are quite a gift and an encouragement to me and I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you, Scott, it was my pleasure. And you're doing such a great job. I'm sorry you had to go through the turmoil that you did, but it woke you up and now look at you, you're a dynamo and you're reaching thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. The way it works. Thank you very much for that. God, God gets the credit. He, he lit a fire under my lazy rear end and now, now I'm all in on this. <laughs> thank you. All right, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Further details, we return you now to your regularly scheduled program.